Historically, black colleges and universities or HBCUs are as American as anything. They are institutions that seek first and foremost to improve people's station in life, except these schools were founded to do that for people who were enslaved and coming from centuries-long prohibition against their education. Slavery was ended and legal segregation took its place. If African Americans were to receive an education, and especially a higher education, they'd need their own system in which to receive it. Filmmaker Stanley Nelson has been making films for over 30 years, and his latest, Tell Them We Are Rising, airs on PBS on Monday, February 19th, and it's the first documentary to tell the story of HBCUs from their inception through to today. Welcome to The Crush. Welcome to The Crush. I'm Gavin Sweeney, and I'm an admissions counselor at the University of Rochester who also likes to learn things in my spare time about the world of college and college admissions, and sometimes I have conversations with MacArthur Genius Grant winners, and then I record them so that you can hear them too. Subscribe and rate this show on iTunes and visit crushpodcast.com for more information on episodes, and follow me on Twitter where the handle is at crushpod. While it isn't new to us in this country, recent events likely reminded you that we live in a pretty racialized society. We are a nation with a very complicated racial history, and this month, the month of my birth, February, is Black History Month. Today I talk with somebody who has been contributing to the institutionalization of black history as a documentary filmmaker with films about Marcus Garvey, Emmett Till, the Black Panthers, the Freedom Writers, and his most recent contribution is called Tell Them We Are Rising, and it is the story of historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs. Listeners might be familiar with some of the more well-known institutions like Howard, Clark, Spelman, Tuskegee, and Martin Luther King Jr.'s alma mater, Morehouse College. But this is a system of over 100 different institutions serving about 300,000 students nationwide and the U.S. Virgin Islands, home to University of Virgin Islands. To quote a 2013 report by University of Pennsylvania professor Mary Beth Gassman, these institutions are public and private, religious and non-sectarian, two-year and four-year, selective and open, urban and rural. Some are financially strong while others are struggling. In essence, they represent the great variety that we have in American higher education. These schools were established before the Civil War and through 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was passed by Congress, making it illegal for colleges and universities to keep black students out. Affirmative action practices, while continuing to come under attack, even today, have made improvements in our enrollment practices when it comes to students of color. However, our national system of education has continued to make it difficult and by many measures fail America's students of color, specifically black students, when it comes to enrolling in four-year colleges in numbers that are representative of the nation's population. In fact, according to a New York Times report, blacks and Hispanics are more underrepresented at top colleges, so those being the most selective, than they were 35 years ago. So let's learn a bit from Stanley first now and again through watching Tell Them We Are Rising Once It Airs about the unique place HBCUs have in our national history, culture, and consciousness. I spoke to Stanley from his hotel in Washington, D.C. Well, I am really honored to be joined today on uh, relatively short notice by Emmy award-winning and uh, Obama-granted National Humanities award-winning MacArthur genius designation having filmmaker Stanley Nelson, all those things. No disrespect to our mutual friend 
Akil Bello who introduced us, but I think you're the most decorated guest that I've had on so far. Oh, that's a real <laughs> honor. Thanks. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's, uh, it's an honor to be able to speak to you. I mean, I can't believe they keep passing me up for a MacArthur Grant. I mean, I don't know how many podcasts I have to make before I, you know, I make the, the list. We'll see. I don't know if it's... Yeah. I don't know if it's... You just never know. Yeah. (laughs) I'll keep my fingers crossed. Well, I'm talking to you today because uh, you have a new film coming out and uh, you're in Washington, D.C. right now. I would imagine in preparation for the release on Monday, February 19th of your newest film called Tell Them We Are Rising. It airs at 9 p.m. Eastern on PBS and it is the first ever documentary about historically black colleges and universities or HBCUs. Talk to me about the film and why now is the time for a film about HBCUs? Um, Well, it is a look at the uh, over 150 years of history of historically black colleges and universities. Um, You know, but, but in making the film, I realized that one of the things that film does best is tell stories. And so we wanted to tell stories. So it's not, it's not kind of a laundry list of different schools. It it really tells uh, eight stories uh, or so uh, throughout the history of the schools, yeah, very dramatic stories. Um, uh, they give people an idea of what HBCUs are and what they represent and what they, they have been. I think there's, uh, a lot of surprises in the film and um, great history and great, beautiful, incredible pictures and footage that nobody has seen before, but great stories and great storytellers. Where did you find some of this stuff that, that none of us have seen before? Well, going into the film, you know, I've done a number of historical films and going into the film, um, I felt that one of the things that HBCUs provided were pictures that nobody had seen. So, you know, it's something that people don't think about, a lot of times when they're telling history and telling African-American history, that if you're doing a film, uh, let's say you're doing a film on Reconstruction, right? Um, you know, the years from 1865 to 1880 or so, whatever they were. Um, and you're doing a, a film, well, you might not think that, that Howard University has pictures and Fisk has pictures and Morehouse and all these other schools have pictures and existed back then. Um, and they have, you know, pictures in there that they've saved. And so one of the things going into it, we knew was that, that, um, these schools had footage and pictures and other things that we could use. So, um, frankly, the, that was one of the motivations is that, you know, in doing films about African-American history, you know, you don't find a lot of pictures, you know, there's, there's just a limited amount of pictures. African-Americans didn't get their pictures taken that much. Um, and so you know, you're always looking for new material. This was uh, an incredible resource of, of new material. And you've got a really personal connection to these schools. Tell me about it. Well, I got a lot of connections. My, my, my parents went to HBCUs. That, that, I guess, is the biggest connection. My parents both went to HBCUs in the 1930s. Um, and, you know, that was the only place that they could even think about going to college. My mother went to Talladega in Alabama. My father went to uh, Howard in Washington, D.C. But the only way they were going to go to college, and so many black folks were going to go to college, was to go to uh, a black college. Um, you know, before the late 60s, probably 95% of black people that, that, that started in higher education got that at higher education at a black college or university. Um, it's a, it's something that I, you know, probably a, a not a lot of people that are in my own demographic group can say, but as I have a, a bit of a personal history with it myself. My dad 
50 years ago, hitchhiked to Jackson, Mississippi in 1968 to go to HBCU at Tougaloo College mm-hmm. through a partnership with Brown University that I guess still exists. It still does, yeah. It definitely still exists. I, was at, I showed the film at Brown um, months ago, and um, that was one of the topics of discussion. Was um, It was really interesting. We showed the film at Brown, and an African-American woman student who, who's going to Brown uh, said that... Um, she had gone to two, she had spent a year or a term at Tougaloo and how it had, it had changed her life and how wonderful it was to the nurturing environment and how, you know, not to be looked at, uh, for, for that period, you know, as, as just a black person, but, you know, for, for, for to be an African-American and an African-American student was normal, um, for that time in her life and how she cherished it. It, it was amazing, and I asked her, you know, why, why didn't, why didn't you stay at Tougaloo? She said, you know, I wanted the Brown degree. You know, I had one more year, and I wanted, the, I, I wanted my, the, the the Brown degree that's looked at as being uh, more of a prize. And so I came back to Brown, but I love Tougaloo. HBCUs have been around, as you mentioned, for over 150 years, and there's over a hundred of them at this present time. Where did they come from? Uh, well, it came from a number of places. So um, there were three uh, HBCUs in, in the North that started um, before the Civil War. Um, Cheney, Lincoln, and Wilberforce all you know, started before the Civil War because, of course, before the Civil War, there, was, there were no black colleges uh, outside, I mean, in the South. But right after the Civil War, and as we... Uh, talk about in the film, one of the things that was so important to people being um, freed from being enslaved was getting an education, that this was looked at as like, you know, the holy grail, you know, we just get an education. So black schools were started, black colleges, and and, and basically they started from, you know, black grade schools that turned into high schools that turned into colleges. you know, and one of the things we try to do in the film is also make sure that, that we give the agency for starting these schools to African-Americans. So, you know, there were there were societies like the American Missionary Association, uh, which was a northern society that comes down to the south and starts schools. Um, the federal government starts schools. The Freedmen Bureau starts schools. You know, all uh Different churches uh, start schools, the AME and, and others. Um, but but the real agency for starting these schools is are the Southern African Americans, the, the people who've been freed from slavery themselves, who really push for for public education. One of the one of the interesting things that that uh, we actually don't have time to really talk about this in the film, but African Americans in the South have been credited with starting the or or or, or forcing the public, the whole public school system in the South, because it was African-Americans who were pushing for education after, after and they were pushing for, for a system to set up of schooling. And, um, you know, the, the whites in the South, the white planter elite did not want education at all for anybody, you know, for black people or white people and, and resisted, but it was the black people pushing for education, which forced, uh, uh, the government, the federal government, to to begin a, a public education system all throughout the South. It sounds like it it, it may have been convenient uh, to use perhaps the wrong word, but the best I can come up with at the moment for both white and black society for HBCUs to come to be, uh, given that 
it would be another arguably hundred years after the start of the Civil War before American systems of higher education really started to integrate nationally. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that 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 was part of the you know, part of what happened. I mean, you know, a, you know, after after the Civil War, you know, ninety nine percent of black schools or ninety eight percent of black schools that, that began are uh, began you know in the South and 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 their uh, their black colleges because. You know, it was unthinkable to start uh, an integrated college at that point. You know, the white colleges that were already existing were, of course, not integrated. And, and you know, there, there could never be any kind of thought in the in the South of setting up an integrated school at that point. So for, for, for African Americans to be educated, the only way they would be educated, you know, in the South, again, where the vast, vast, vast majority of African Americans lived, you know, after the Civil War, the, the only way that could happen would be to set up uh, black schools. And, as, you know, again, sometimes they were set up as, 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 as grade schools, that as, as the students got older and older, they went, they went into high school, and then uh, they kind of turned into colleges as, as they went on. That happened over and over again. So they needed to kind of build the, build the bridge as they were walking across it. Yeah. You're kind of making this system up as it went along in some, in some ways. Right. And one of, the, one of the big reasons, you know, for, for black colleges at that point were because African Americans needed teachers so badly. You know, you, you, you know, so you have this, well, one of the things we, we started out the film with is, is talking about how under slavery, it was not only illegal for African-Americans to, to, uh, to be educated, it was illegal for even their owners to educate them. There were laws on the books in all the Southern states. It, it is illegal for you, for an owner to educate his slaves. Mm-hmm. So you have to understand that you had a huge, you know, the, the, the population, the black population itself was largely made up of enslaved people, and they were largely, largely, largely uneducated. And suddenly they were all free. So how are we going to educate these people? So one of the things that, that had to happen was um, people had to be trained to teach them. Um, and, and that's one of the, the main reasons that, that black colleges were set up. Tell me about the impact that these schools have had on our country. For instance, I know that you mentioned these statistics uh, in uh, the piece, that, the short piece that you released in the New York Times, uh, which we'll get into, talking about black colleges in the age of Trump. But you say that 70 percent of all black dentists and doctors, 50 percent of black engineers and public school teachers and 35 percent of black lawyers all came from HBCUs. Yeah, HBCUs have a huge uh, proportion of, of educating African Americans historically and, and African American professionals. They've been the largest catalyst for African Americans to join the, the the middle class, um, and they still do. I mean, they still they still have a huge um, and outsized um, uh, influence um, in the education of African Americans. Way larger than than th- their numbers, even today. I could see that some people who aren't familiar with HBCUs who are maybe coming to this issue recently, digging into, as I hope a lot more people are doing this day and age, uh, especially in the white community, thinking a little bit more about race and the role it's played in this country, especially the, the impact of education. They might be saying to themselves, you know, if black people are so interested in you know, having this uh, uh, an, an equal system in our society, why is it that they want to continue to support and, and sort of hang on to this a vestige of a segregated era instead of, you know, attempting to, I don't know, resolve the issue by integrating the uh, further the uh, the system of higher ed that, that we might refer to as PWIs or predominantly white institutions. 
Well, I mean, I, I think that's an interesting point. I think that, that look, you know, in, in general, African Americans would like nothing better than, than, than to live in, a, in an integrated society. But we don't. You know, we live in a society at this point that is that is highly, highly racialized. I mean, I think we're seeing that more than ever. I think, you know, anybody with their eyes open is, is, is seeing that, you know, in the last couple of years, they're like, oh, my God, you know, where are we? Um, and so I think that we are living in a very, very racialized society. Um, and that, you know, just one one point is you know, the education that African-Americans receive because of the segregated neighborhoods they live in and the segregated schools that they go to is nowhere near the the, the education that, that white folks receive. You know, part of it is that, you know, a large part of our school systems are run on tax dollars. So, you know, if you live in a richer neighborhood, you have, you have a rich school. Um, you know, s- simple point. So the educational education system is is unbalanced. Um, so you have everyone that's in high school who you know are not, are not competing in the, in the same way. Um, so that that that's 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 one thing. I mean, you know, the other thing that that, that easily people easy, easy answer people say, well, you know, nobody's talking about doing away with Catholic universities, mm-hmm. right? Nobody's saying that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, why should you do it with African-American uh, universities? The other thing is, if you see the film, you understand what what, Af- what black colleges have meant to the African-American community and to the American community, what it means to have this safe space, where uh, safe intellectual space that is, is the only safe intellectual space that, that we have in this country. Uh, you know, there's a reason why, you know, Brown versus Board of Education came out of Howard, came out of a black school. There's a reason why the sit-in movements came out of black schools, North Carolina, A&T, and others. There's a reason why um, the Freedom Rides and, and Freedom Summer were largely uh, propelled by students from, from black colleges. There's a reason why Martin Luther King went to a black college. I, I, I think, you know, if you do a little digging and, and, and thinking and understanding it, it's very clear why, you know, what HBCs have represented and why we still need them. Now, it would be great. It would be great. It would be a great day if, if, if we said, okay, the playing field is equal. You know, this country, you know, this country is, 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 is not racialized. Mm-hmm. You know, everything, everything is cool. You know, you know, I'll be the first one. So, you know, and so would many others jump in and say, okay, so now we don't need HBCUs. But at this point, we're not even getting, we're not even close. And we're going the other way. You know, it, just, it seems like we've seen in the last couple of years, this country is getting more uh, racialized than it's ever been. And I, mean, I can't say that. Let me not say that. That's not true. But but it's more racist than, than than it was, you know, a few years ago than, than we thought it was. It's certainly the perception is certainly more racialized, I think, than a lot of people thought it would be, given the actions, activities, successes um, of the of the civil rights movement. I think today, right now, it's uh, it does feel, as you mentioned, that you know we are kind of slipping backwards a little bit. One of the things that one of your guests said uh, that I saw in the trailer for the film is that uh, she, she, she talked about HBCUs being unapologetically black spaces. So you talked about them being safe spaces intellectually and academically. Well, what do you think she meant when she talked about them being unapologetically black spaces and, and, and why that's important? And why do you think she was compelled to use the word unapologetic? Well, I mean, I, I think that, that, that one of the things that HBCUs 
do and have done is is, is besides edu- educate African Americans is is also preserve a, a, a bit of culture. So you know, I mean, I've been showing this film on HBCU campuses for the last few months, and you know, I've been to twenty or thirty schools. You know, it's just there's a different energy happening. You know, it, it, the 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 energy and exuberance that African Americans have and that we have in our culture is not something that that you have to hide away and stash away. You know, um, you know that you know you you go into the auditorium where the film is playing, and uh, you know they might be playing hip hop. You know, we've been to so many schools where part of what happens is the the marching band comes in, you know, and and, and plays a tune or two before before the film comes on. These schools, uh, they are also very nurturing spaces for African-Americans. And so there's a slight difference in the education, you know, the educational system, the way it's set up, where at a majority white institution, a lot of times the the, the understanding is, well, you know, you got here, you're on your own, right? You you know, you're in, we let you in, do do it on your own. Well, black college, a lot of times, you need that help. You have that helping hand, and sometimes it's needed. You have that helping hand that says, you know, you can do this. You You know, you belong here. This is important. This is important for you, and you can do it. That's what happened for my father. You know, when he went to college, he and his his brother were the first two members of his family to graduate high school. He always told me, like, when he went to college, his mother just said, you know, I can't tell you anything, man. Do your best. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't help you with your homework. I don't know what to tell you about your professors. I never even graduated high school. I can't do anything. Mm -hmm. But the people at Howard helped him Mm -hmm. and said, you can do this. It was it was actually Elaine Locke, great intellectual, pulled my father aside and said, you know, look, you need to stop joking around, man. You know, you know, you are a smart human being. You know, you have it in you to succeed. You know, stop fooling around. And you know, my father went on to to Howard Dental School and became became a dentist and became a successful dentist and you know, changed my life and changed my kids' life and their kids' lives all down through the generations. Mm-hmm. So. I forgot what the question was, but that's the answer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like it. Um, were you working on this film prior to the uh, presidential election, or in yeah, some, yeah, know? yeah? We were, we were actually, we we actually were just finishing the film um, when Trump was elected. Yeah, so so we finished the film last uh, January in 2017. Although it hasn't aired on TV, that's the big deal, you know, they are on February 19th, but we, had, we were just putting the finishing touches on it when, when, the, when the election happened. I mean, it's, it's obviously serendipitous is, is again, the wrong word. I'm going to, you know, go work on my word choice here, my interview techniques, but it did happen that uh, this president brought a lot of attention to HBCUs really short into his presidency, and it's been a pretty tumultuous year for him and, and obviously in general for the nation, for the planet Earth and the galaxy, but especially also in terms of its, you know, the HBCU's relationship to the federal government, which they rely quite a bit. You mentioned a lot of some of these incidences in, in your film, but just to bring it up here and to recap, you know, your 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 mother's alma mater, you said Talladega State College in, in Alabama was the one black marching band that played during the presidential inauguration, and they caught some hell for it. Uh, you said that it, it looked like a modern day minstrel show. HBCU presidents met with Trump at his invitation. They also 
caught some hell for that. And what we remember about that is, you know, Kellyanne Conway sitting on the sofa with her, with her, uh, her shoes off, you know, tweeting the image of the, uh, the meeting or something. Uh, and then Betsy DeVos, who is a, the new secretary of education, has had a couple of, of unfortunate experiences with HBCU. She said that um, they were sort of pioneers of school choice uh, when, in fact, their existence was due, in fact, entirely to their inability to choose. And then there was Bethune-Cookman University having her as their commencement speaker and students standing up and turning their back to her as she spoke. So this has been a challenging year for, uh, as I said, the country, but also for HBCU's relationship to the, the nation. Do black colleges stand to benefit from talking to and working with this presidential administration, or is doing so too detrimental to their own reputation, as we saw in the instance of a couple of these schools that chose to engage this administration? Yeah, that, that's a real interesting question, and that's the, the point of this little film. I should say that 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 those, the piece you're talking about is, is a New York Times op doc. Absolutely, that, that we did. It's not in Telomere Rising. It's it's a New York Times op doc. Okay, and I'm absolutely gonna go online. Link to that to in, the, in the show notes for sure. Okay, great. So you can go to New York Times op doc and find it. Um, but I, I think I think the whole idea of, of that piece is that you know that the that one was to explain you know what, what was happening where. You know, it was it was our contention that that uh, black colleges and universities had been in the news over in the, over the last year of the Trump administration more than they'd, they'd been in, in the previous 20 years. Um, and to explain that and, and to say that, you know, in, in some ways, the uh, administrators at, at black colleges are, are in between a rock and a hard place. You know, um, as someone says in the film, I mean, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, they get money from the government. So if you're the president of, of a black institution and Trump says he, he wants to talk, um, I, I, you know, you're in a weird position because I think you, you, you're, 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 um, you're, you're uh, not fulfilling your duty, you know, not to talk. They, they can cost your school huge or huge amounts of money that, that, that keep your school surviving. But you also understand that, that Trump you know, has been so toxic to the black community and may, in fact, be toxic to you personally. But, you know, so what do you do? You know, how do, how do, you, how do you navigate that minefield and how do you navigate the minefield of a president that's really only interested in, in, in a photo op? You know, and, you know, it's a great, great photo op to have, you know, these black college presidents, you know, all in suits and ties and, you know, and, and, and the women dressed, you know, really nicely in back of you, you know, and, and, and you're the only white man sitting there. Um, and, you know, I'm here with my black people, mm-hmm. you know, um, so it makes it, it makes a great optic for you. But uh, and on, on the other hand, for, for, for the presidents, you know, what are they going to do? Are they, gonna, are they not going to go? I, I'm not sure I know the answer to that one, but I know that it's a, it, it is, you know, a real dilemma for them. And I, and I think that one of the things we wanted to do in this piece was, was, was to understand it, but also see the humor in it. Because I think in some ways the, the piece has its humorous moments, you know, as everything that Trump does has. Yes, uh, we, we laugh to keep from crying, I think, at times. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting because you, you said that they, the, the, they do rely on the federal government for a lot of their, their support. They rely on the federal government for, there's a program called the HBCU University Capital Financing Program, which gives them money to, uh, to make improvements to facilities. But one of the other things that HBCUs rely on in terms of federal funding is that the overwhelming majority of HBCUs students 
uh, are uh, students who are at such a, an income level that they require Pell Grant assistance in order to attend. So these are students who, you know, the, the, the sort of equivalent of, you know, free lunch recipients, right, in high schools and, 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 and earlier grades who, who really are in a financial situation that need a lot of federal assistance in order to attend. And there is no sort of equal system in our country that relies on this amount of support for its students, right? Right. Well, I mean, one of the things that's so amazing about HBCUs is, you know, the purport, how many people there are on Pell Grants. I mean, it's huge. I, I do believe we were at a university the other day and, and the president said like 40% of the students are on Pell Grants. I think I was at another one and somebody said 70 or something like right. that. You know, it's just a huge proportion of students who are, on, who are on Pell Grants, a huge proportion of students who are the first person in their family to go to college. Um, you know, that, that's, what these, that's what these institutions provide uh, to these students. And, and um, so they do rely you know, heavily on, 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 a, on, a federal, on the federal government, a federal government that at this point is, is, is unstable. You know, so we just don't know, you know, uh, what's going to happen. So it, it, they are, um, you know, in, in, a, in, a very, in a very strange position, you know. Um, but I guess, you know, in some ways we all are right now. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thankful for to Akil for sharing with me the University of Pennsylvania's uh, Mary Beth Gassman is a professor who's been doing a lot of work on this. So she re- created a report on HBCUs. And, you know, one of the things that she wanted to say to this, because I think, you know, people that, again, are not digging into the issue beyond maybe what it, how it might appear on the on the surface might say, well, this is a system that's in trouble when, in fact, you know what? This report reminds us is that, you know, it's the students whom the system serves that are coming from backgrounds that require a lot more assistance than is traditionally the case at, you know, the majority of uh, PWIs, right? And so, in fact, what she says is many of these places where the data show HBCUs lagging behind their national counterparts, the disconnect reflects less on the institutions than on the tendency in the United States to invest in students who need the least help instead of those who need the most. What's striking uh, is how successful HBCUs have been in educating traditionally underserved students despite the many obstacles these institutions face. So what do you have to say about that? What are some of these unique obstacles that HBCUs face in spite of which they have been able to succeed and how have they done so? Well, I mean, I think one of the, the things that HBCUs do is, is they, they work to nurture these students. You know, they know they work with these populations who they have worked with for years and they understand these populations. And so they work with students, that, you know, um, uh, they do remedial work. Um, you know, they do, I mean, there, there's little things that, 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 that you can do. You know, you can um, have, the, have students who, who are kind of, who are first generation uh, students, you know, um, come, come to school a week early. You know, and give them a, a deeper orientation uh, on on what college life is and college life life is like. Um, you can set up you know mentor mentors for the mentoring group, either with professors or 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 older students. You know, um, study groups. There's there's so many things that that these schools do. You know, to nurture these students. But but I think you know maybe maybe even more valuable, just as valuable, is that attitude, that attitude that we talked about earlier, that attitude that says, you know, hey, you can do this. So like my father, you know, you know, at these schools, it may be the first time anybody ever said to them, you know, you are smart. You are smart. You can do this. And so I think that's really important. I also think that, you know, just going back to, to 
uh, well, what you were saying earlier, what Mary Beth Gasson said, is one of the things that colleges are there to do is to bring people into the middle class, to bring to bring people up who aren't there. You know, if colleges are just to 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 uh, to educate legacy people, you know, just you know, your your father went here, your mother went here, you're a legacy, you know, you go here too. If that's all that that they're they're supposed to do, I mean, what does that say about society? It sounds like we're going back to you know the societies of of, of Europe, you know, in the 17th century, 18th century, you know, where you know you're you're stuck in your place. You know, and that's that's what the United States was supposed is supposed to be something different, you know, where there is movement, where you have a chance to move up in society. Right. Um, so, again, I think that's one thing that, that black colleges, you know, have provided and, and still provide our, our, our way, you know, into the middle class, a way into a different life. You know, and that's what, you know, everybody mm-hmm. wants, you know, yeah. a way into the into into another life for, for you. And once you're there. You know, there's a you know, your your kids have a good shot of, of staying there, or going further on, and their kids and their kids. Um, but black colleges are that first step up up the ladder. One of the other things that is mentioned in this report is that eighty uh, percent of uh, student enrollment at HBCUs are African American students, and the other twenty percent are represented by a whole slew of other of other ethnic groups. And they've said that part of their plan for sustainability, or, or rather that the report says, is a, a plan for HBCUs continued sort of viability as a as a system is to is to increase the diversity of its student body. And um, it's an interesting question that is usually asked in a very different way among PWIs, right? Uh, that students that are underrepresented minorities are in fact much more in the, in the majority, especially you know, African-Americans at HBCUs. What did you experience when you were visiting these schools in terms of uh, interacting with students who, who weren't black who were going to HBCUs? You know, I, I think that, that, that there, there are some changes being made, especially to the public institutions um, you know, and, but I think the first point, you know, that, that has to be made for people that don't know that much about HBCUs is, is, is black colleges and universities have always accepted and allowed anybody to attend that wanted to. If your grades are up and you, you, you know, you can even get in. So it, they've never been like, oh, no, 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 we don't, we don't let white people in here. We don't let Asians, you know, mm-hmm. um, for, for many years, um, you know, a lot of the black colleges educated so many of the elites of Africa and the Caribbean. Kwame Nkrumah and others were, were educated, you know, at, at HBCUs in this country. So, so because when they, you know, are coming from Africa, they can only go or only feel comfortable at a black college and university. So, I, I think that you know what's what's happening today, in, in a certain sense, is that um, you know some some of the schools, especially the, the public graduate schools, you know, are accepting more uh, 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 students of other races, uh, and and that, you know that's 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 just natural you know as as a, a college education and almost a grad school education be- becomes something that so many people in this in this country desire people are looking for places where where they can go and and get in and, and where the education is good and you know so many of the HBC graduate schools especially have have excelled so um some of the uh, and so in the public institutions where you know, uh, basically, you you have no control about you know who gets in and who doesn't. Um, I think are becoming um, uh, much m- less less um, heavily uh, African American. 
But I, I don't think, from what I saw, and I'm not the one really to talk about. I mean, I'm a filmmaker traveling around. You know, I'm just <laughs> seeing what I see with my eyes. I, I, I don't, I don't think that that's the threat that 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 some people make it out to be at this at this point. You know, who knows? Ten, twenty years down the line, maybe. Um, you know, if they pass different laws and different rules, if money gets cut off, who knows? Maybe. But I, I don't think you know. At at this point, the schools that I saw were still you know. Uh, largely black, heavily black, and heavily serving the same population in the same way that they've always had. Who do you hope sees, besides everybody, who do you hope sees your movie, and what impact do you do you hope it has? Um, you know, I hope, I can't, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't say anything else, but I hope everybody sees it. You know, we made the film for everybody. We made the film to be entertaining. We made the film to tell stories, and, and you know, that's kind of what I've done throughout, you know, my uh, short filmmaking history is try to, you know, tell stories that that may be, you know, rooted in the African American experience, but that are stories that 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 are for everybody. So that that's what I what I how I hope the audience is. I mean, I think that was one of the um, the, the the hard things of making this film was we knew that that an audience would come to this film. Some would be, you know, from HBCU. Their, their, their parents went to black colleges. Their grandparents went. They think they know a lot about black colleges, and they may. Uh, others would come in. They don't even know what HBCU stands for, you know. Um, and and how do we how do we uh, uh, give make a film that gives something to everybody? I, I think we, we we've done that. So 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 that's it. And, and I you know, and I'm not sure that that we're looking for any any one reaction. You know, I think that people that well, we want people to to first be entertained, you know, to, to you know, understand uh, the importance of, of, of education and how important education has been throughout history for black folks and, 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 and understand how important uh, black colleges and universities have been. Well, thanks very much. I'm going to let you get on uh, about your, your day and your promotional activities. Stanley Nelson, uh, many time over award-winning filmmaker tell them we are rising airs monday february 19th at 9 p.m eastern as part of pbs's independent lens film series you can watch black colleges in the age of trump right now at new york times uh, uh, op docs stanley where will you be watching on monday the 19th uh, i'll be at home watching watching it with my wife we may have some of the people who worked on the film over um, you know, I'm one of those people, you know, when I watch the film, I don't like to have a big party because the people start talking and I get mad. I think they're not interested. <laughs> I think somehow I've lost their interest. So I try to keep it down to as few people as possible. But uh, I definitely be watching at home. And vigorously tweeting using the hashtag HBCUs Rising. Please. And, and everybody watch this tweet. Tell your friends. Let everybody know. Uh, it's really important that people see this film and also let other people know about it. Thank you very much for your time, Stanley. Best of luck, and we're looking forward to seeing it. Thank you. That was good. Thank you. All right, guys, please watch the show on Monday and tweet about it. HBCU Rising is the hashtag. I think I said HBCUs Rising in the last bit there, but there's no S. Just HBCU Rising is the hashtag. And if you miss the show, visit firelightmedia.tv, which is Stanley's company's website, and they'll probably have more information about where else and how else you might be able to view it if you do miss it on Monday. I was fascinated to hear the story that Stanley shared about the girl in the Tougaloo-Brown partnership that my dad was a part of 50 years ago, uh, the girl who chose to remain at Brown because of the value of that degree's brand. It struck me as really, really sad to think that, 
you know, if she had had a degree that said Tougaloo on it instead of Brown, her achievements and future contributions after college would be viewed as less valuable. And I think this image sums up not just how people feel about institutions of prestige in America these days, but also just how HBCUs are regarded. Our national system of higher education does a lot more to reinforce our class and race structure than it does to help it. I mean, we're working very, very hard for that not to be the case every day. I know that firsthand, but it remains the truth. And people are noticing. And I think they're drawing different conclusions, however, about the same truth. Take, for instance, that after a decade of leadership by a woman, Harvard chose a white guy to be president recently, who is not only a white guy, but a white guy economist named Larry, making him the second white economist named Larry to be Harvard's president. Of course, the first being uh, Larry Lawrence Summers. He was actually on the presidential search committee at Harvard, apparently, to replace Drew Gilpin Faust. Uh, and uh, apparently they said that the answer to their massive institutional question was hiding in plain sight. This is a guy who also had positions at Tufts and MIT, and uh, these are a couple of places that are not terribly far away geographically or culturally from Harvard, and so, I mean, people are rightly shaking their heads a, a little bit here, but uh, he, uh, Larry Bakow is his name, might be Bako, I'm going with Bakow, he said in a press conference, I think academic institutions, including Harvard, need to pay more attention to those in this country who've been left behind in this economy. And yeah, that's true, totally, completely. However, uh, this has now become a meme in our culture at this point. This kind of overreach by left-leaning institutions from places like the New York Times to now Harvard, who are seeing some responsibility for Trump's election at the hands of frustrated, poor white people, uh, even though many reports show that more of Trump's voters were affluent than they were poor. What this is really about is the fact that Republicans are in control of the government and they have just created a new excise tax that will cost Harvard $43 million a year. Irony of ironies for the Republicans to be taxing the rich here. And so maybe if they send a white economist named Larry to talk to them about this, it'll work out better since well, most of the Republicans are white guys. Some are even maybe named Larry. But I think if Harvard were more serious about doing more for those who were left behind in the economy, if you're reading between the lines there, it might be better if the latest Larry's last name wasn't Bakeow, but uh, the cable guy. The fact remains, the machine that feeds conservative news outlets has done an absolutely world-class job of undermining fact-based inquiry. And the value of colleges, from denying climate change to writing off safe spaces as an absurdity created by easily triggered snowflakes that don't know anything about the real world, but rather than look to big bad wolves with impenetrable barriers to entry and billions of dollars and ivy-covered walls and take economic pitchforks to these places by charging their endowments of tax, why don't we do more to support the rest of our system of higher education, regional colleges and universities, community colleges, and HBCUs, and lift them up so that they can really promote the kinds of economic propulsion that happened with Stanley's parents. Wouldn't that be good economic practice? Why don't we give more money to support Pell Grants that support the students, that support HBCUs? Why don't our nation's philanthropists support what Malcolm Gladwell refers to in his excellent podcast episode called My Little Hundred Million as weak link thinking and give to our more needy colleges and universities instead of those strong links in our higher education network? 
Anyways, tons and tons of work to be done, and I hope that young woman graduates from Brown and sees nothing but daylight and opportunity ahead of her. And I hope that you all watch Stanley Nelson's film once again, airing President's Day. And two days before my birthday, on February 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on PBS, I am getting old. We already talked about taxes, so I suppose this is the part where we talk about death. The thing we can't escape. One step closer to the grave, everybody. I'm officially pushing 40. They say that's when life begins, though, so I'm pretty psyched for that, for life to finally start. Man, I wonder how it's going to be. Thanks, as always, for listening, guys. More coming soon. And in the meantime, spread love.